Welcome to the Homegirls. Four top producing mega realtors, moms, wives, and friends talking about real estate and real life. Angela, Kristen, Jessica, and Lindsay are in the top 1% of all real estate agents and would be honored to receive your real estate referrals in Colorado. Join us as we drop a new episode every Monday anywhere podcasts are aired, in real life on YouTube, and connect with us every day on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HomegirlsCO. Thanks for listening. We love you. Hi, everybody. We are the Homegirls, and we're here today with my good friend, Jake Dreyfus, who is formerly of Philly, but now is here in Denver. And I met Jake because when his family moved here to Colorado, I was given the honor of helping them purchase their home here in town, which was really fun and also terrifying to help such a high level uh, person with such an illustrious career in this industry. So that was really fun. Um, Jake, I would love if you would just tell us a little bit about how you got into real estate, how all of this started, and then we can dive into all the crazy fun stuff you're doing. Sure. Well, thank you so much. That's what a nice introduction. I really appreciate that. It's really, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah. So I started real estate actually right out of school. Um, potentially some people listening might relate, you know, going through college, I went to Penn State and going through college um, in, in the business school, there's a lot of pressure to have internships. And um, I had this experience where I was actually walking to what I thought was a marketing interview. And it turned out the interviewer um, walked me to the wrong room. I ended up interviewing for a job in Chicago and I ended up getting it. Um, so the interviewer didn't realize he was talking to the wrong person and I didn't realize I was interviewing for the wrong job. Uh, ended up living in Chicago in an internship doing logistics um, for Sears actually when Sears was first launching their website. So that tells you how long ago this was. You can try to figure out how old I am. Um, and that's what made me realize that I did not want to be doing anything that relates to business other than being on the front lines and um, really being with customers and building, building business. I didn't want to be behind the scenes. I want to be up front. So that, that triggered me to wonder, okay, well, what does that mean? Now that I know that, um, I don't want to sit behind a computer all day. What do I do? And one of the things I, I studied at school, which I'm still fascinated with actually, is consumer psychology. And I was just fascinated by the way people make buying decisions. And I think if we're all really being honest, you know, during COVID, we're probably making some weird, weird purchases. In fact, some people listening to this right now are probably on Amazon buying something they probably don't need, but just want it, you know, to feel good. So I, I thought that, um, you know, with that said, I wanted to study, you know, kind of one of the most challenging decisions that combines an emotional decision with a logical business decision. And that's when people buy their homes. So um, ended up interviewing and getting a wonderful job with uh, a company called NVR, which is the parent company for Ryan Homes and NV Homes. So some of you listening may know those, those national home builder brands. Um, and they, the reason I accepted the job there was not because of the money, because frankly, it wasn't the best, but they did offer a year training program where you basically rotate through all aspects of building a home, everything from working with them on purchasing land from in that, in that time was all farmers uh, how do you structure that? How do you get land rezoned? What do you build? What, what unit mix do you need? What materials do you select? Um, then obviously you rotate through the sales and marketing roles and learn how to sell a home, learn how to meet customers and help them design them, spend time working in the field with your hammer and your, your tape measure and, you know, out in the elements and doing that. So it was super fun and just gave me, I, I felt like in one year, a really well-rounded beginning to what is now an 18-year career in real estate. So that's kind of how it started. And then you, how did you land in Philly if you were in 
Oh man, a couple, di- couple different things happened. So I, I, grew, I grew up in Philly after going to Penn State. Uh, Envy Homes brought me down to Northern Virginia, which is what Envy stands for. And so I spent time living and selling real estate in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. Um, I ended up working for a small boutique brokerage called the Mayhood Company. And if, if David's listening, I, I really miss him. He's one of my one of my mentors coming up through the business. He owned, he owned this company, and it was really it was a real estate brokerage at its core, but it was really designed as a consultancy for developers. So we would swoop in when a developer bought a piece of land and help them figure out what to do with it. And then once we helped them figure out what to do with it, we'd help them sell it. So it was a really cool soup to nuts approach. And that gave me, again, just like another perspective on high rise development, which I hadn't learned before. Um, had some success there. My partner and I, um, Allison Gieber, who's again, one of my, I just, I'm so fortunate. There's been so many people through my career that I just, I look back and just, I'm so appreciative of you. Allison was my partner there. We ended up being the top two salespeople in all of DC, Maryland, and Virginia. And then because of that notoriety, we were selected to come up and work on a project in Philadelphia which was the conversion of one of the highest skyscrapers in Philadelphia. They were taking the top 30 floors and converting it to luxury high-rise residential, um, which would be the highest price per square foot that anything in Pennsylvania ever saw. So it was a really cool challenge and opportunity. And for me, it was fun too, because it was a homecoming. So I could see some friends and family and just uh, maybe some people listening can relate to after graduating college, I was approached by some buddies that were like, Hey, we're, we're thinking about quitting our jobs and opening a restaurant. Would you, would you want in? I was like, well, I don't want to run it, but I've always wanted to own a restaurant. I'm not sure why. So long story short, we ended up buying a chain of restaurants called the Pita Pit, if anyone's familiar with them. Yes. The small, small franchise out of Canada, really they obscure. They had those in um, Fort Collins at CSU where I went to college. It yes. was three in the morning, give me a pita. Yes, and that's exactly what it was. So at Penn State, that model worked so well. And then, of course, my buddies, you know, after six years after graduation, when you're still living on a college campus, they were like, look, we'd like to move on with our life. So, you know, number one mistake in business made at the age of, I don't know what I, what I was, 26, 27 was like, all right, well, if you want to move, let's just buy a business where you want to move. Instead of studying the market and thinking, where should we put another restaurant? We ended up buying a restaurant at 16th and Sansom, which is like the busiest cross street in Philadelphia, the most expensive rent you could find for a restaurant. And it had to happen to be literally next door to the real estate project I was selling. So for all those reasons, I was like, all right, I'll move back to Philly because everything's going on there. Um, and that's, that's actually what brought, brought me back up. And you started Philly Living with Noah Ostroff, right? Which is a, a big team for those that don't know in Philadelphia. Tell us about how that started. Yeah, so Noah, Noah's career actually started very similar to mine. He went to Penn State. He was actually my college roommate. We were DJs together. Um, Two Sharp DJs was our DJ business. We, were, we thought we were really good. I'm not sure if we actually were. But we had a great time. And then after college, he decided to go into real estate as well. He, though, moved to Florida. So he started working for another national builder. And we both ended up kind of triangulating, coming back to Philly. He ended up hanging his license uh, at a Coldwell Banker brokerage there and became the number one agent there. And when our paths recrossed again to Philadelphia, we decided it might be exciting to, to team up. Um, you know, and so at that point, he was running, oh gosh, I want to say it was like a $75 million business, which, and the majority of that was coming right off his own business. Um, and, you know, from there we decided to grow it and, um, you know, went from two and a half million dollars in GCI to over just close to seven within like four years of us teaming up together and uh, a lot of great failures and accomplishments during that time period. Tell us about some of those. Well, look, so we, when we first started discussing um, working together, we were also being courted to move our team to another brokerage, to Keller Williams. And that, that caused a much 
it caused a lot of eye-opening conversations that we hadn't really considered before. Um, we, we had always enjoyed our real estate business, but we never actually pondered like how much of it do we actually own. And that was the first time we started thinking about some of those things was when we crossed paths with Keller Williams. They, they, they forced us to think at a different level. And, and frankly, like we took it to an extreme and I'll, I'll share some of the failures around that, but we, we definitely bought into the idea of owning, owning our business, owning our team, eventually owning, owning the brokerage itself was important to us so we can control our destiny for better or for worse. Um, and we also, we also enjoy the concept of expanding our brand. We enjoyed that, that, that notion that we could if we wanted to. And that's where we kind of come into our first, our first massive failure. So, you know, in the real estate business, as you guys know, who are listening, if you're in the business, you know that, you know, unfortunately, when you have to make the decision to put yourself first and leave your brokerage, oftentimes it's the brokerage that's the last person that has to know. It's just, it's an unfortunate fact that like we all, we all deal with. And I'm not quite sure how we could fix it, but it's one of those things. So we obviously have built up tremendous relationships at our existing brokerage. Um, and it was just time. Sometimes you just outgrow it or you outgrow the business model in this case. It wasn't about the people. It was about the business model. And so when we moved, we, we were just all in. We loved that everyone was just sharing openly what they were doing. At this point in time, if you're a KW person, you'll appreciate this. Everyone was speaking about expansion. So we thought that that was something we should be thinking of, even though it wasn't on our business plan really at all. Um, so like I said, we took it to an extreme in our first year, we expanded to 16 different markets, including one in the United Kingdom where we couldn't even get money in and out of the country. We hadn't even thought through any of that stuff. So when, you know, if you're ever presented with someone that, that makes their business look like it was just, everything went to plan. Like I would I caution you to question that only outside people thought, probably thought well, these guys are killing it. No, it was a disaster. What we did was we turned our back on our core team members and basically made them feel like the business they were doing was driving our ability to explore these other markets. And in most cases, exploring and failing. And, and the reason I brought up earlier, actually, that the point about not being able to tell your brokerage about it, we also really couldn't tell our team about it because we couldn't risk um, someone from the team leaking that we were gonna be leaving the brokerage because we literally would just be locked out that day. And we had you know something like 150 pending transactions and 100 listings and it was just, we couldn't risk it. And so we also felt like we were lying to everyone. So. I remember we took everyone on our team out to a wonderful restaurant in Philadelphia for like, you know, our, our annual meeting. And we had what was a fairly normal meeting at first, at first and then we unveiled to them. And we, well, actually at first we took everyone's phone. So we probably figured something was up. But by the end of the meeting, we're literally unveiling their new signs that also for their, their for sale signs that also say Keller Williams on it. And the room just like went silent. It was, so we felt like we were literally, you know, kidnapping people in the middle of the night and moving them to another office. Now, we worked through that. And I think everyone on the team understood that that was what it had to be. But I think if everyone's really being honest, the relationships don't just heal. You, you always think back like, well, Jake didn't trust me enough to tell me that, you know, or Noah didn't trust me. And so it was like, it was a cultural divot that I think we're still, we're still struggling with, frankly. Um, and I think, you know, I know there's all these statistics about, you know, uh, when you study relationships over time and, you know, we all know the unfortunate one when, when a, you know, a spouse dies, there's a, there's a ticking time bomb basically of the, the amount of time before the other spouse will die, depending on how long they've been married or how long they've been together. And I think with the team too, the same thing happens. Like that was just a paper cut, but it amplifies all the other things that they maybe felt like were unfair or um, weren't, weren't truthful either. So we, we didn't realize it, but we were heading right into a cultural challenge and putting the expansion on top of it just exacerbated the issue. So, you know, lessons learned there would be to make sure that 
you know, the foundation of your business, your people, in this case, it's just a people business. We happen to sell real estate, but it's just people making sure that everyone, you understand their love languages first and foremost and understand how they want to feel loved and supported and then overdo it before you start, you know, adding more complexity to a business model and potentially not being as present as you were before. So we grew to 16 markets, Ohio, Florida, oh, where else were we? United Kingdom, we were just all over the place. And it was to a point where like we would literally bring in flags from the new states every week and the ops team would, would laugh and cry almost like at the same time because we had to learn all these new new markets. So, um, How did you pick which market you were going to go into? The opposite way you'd ever want to. It's basically the same way it is at the restaurants. Like, oh, you seem nice and you live here. Okay, let's go there. You know, um, instead of thinking, well, okay, we live in Philadelphia. And, you know, New Jersey is literally, you could swim across the Delaware River and be there. And it's like, you know, four miles from our office. Like, maybe we should just figure that out first. And so the, the complexity of dealing with another state, like we could have had 15 offices in New Jersey and been fine. We could have had another five offices just within spinning distance of our Philly office and been fine. But to insert Ohio for really no good reason other than what we think is a good candidate. And because of course, at that point, we didn't know how to interview either. So if you had a heartbeat and excitement, we're like, yeah. What's the, what's the risk? Well, was, the risk was a lot of time, a lot of money, and yeah. burning the relationships with the people that previously knew us, liked us, and trust us. And that goes for our database as well. So the agents didn't feel the love, and our database felt like we were distracted too. One of the things that I find so amazing about you is that I feel like you're very like emotionally nimble. So you move on from failures or just even things that you don't want to do anymore so easily and so quickly whereas myself and I think so many other people get so stuck in like well I'm doing this or you know I I built this team I can't let it fail or I took this opportunity I can't let it fail like how do you how do you just move on like that it's incredible to me because I think we all just get so stuck in the same damn trenches over and over and over and over again. And then we look up and we're like, well, nothing ever changes. And it's frustrating. And I, I don't, well, I think that the shortest answer to the question is Brene Brown taught me that it's okay. Right. So for those who haven't read any Brene Brown books, Daring Greatly was one of those books that I read and I was like, holy cow, this explains everything. And it's okay to be who I want to be. And what I mean by that is, I lead to your point, Lindsay, like emotionally. And I, I create confidence in myself by sharing my vulnerability. And Brene Brown and, and Darren Grayley speaks about like, there is no such thing as leadership without vulnerability. Well, and I think I would add to that probably won't last. So you can have the perception of it, but unless there's like this, this connection, so and unless you're expressing your vulnerability, it's just not going to last. So for me, that book gave me the permission to, to share, I think more and not have to be perfect. Um, and once I started doing that, the people around me gave me the space to be who I, who I needed to be. And, and those who appreciate that leadership style rally with me and we still have deep relationships to this day. And those that don't relate to that, um, they would have left the business anyway. It just would have taken a lot more time. So by being clear about what I know and what I don't, I think allows, allows me to move forward. With, it gives me more permission, I guess to make mistakes. I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going to ask a lot of questions and I'm going to, I'm not going to pretend I know. Cause that's all to me, that takes more energy. So I just became, I just became more like I could have this never ending talk track in my head of like all my insecurities and 
um, all my fears about will it work or won't I, but if I just let it out, it's cathartic. And then like, it's just out there. And I don't have to worry about it anymore. Everyone around me already knows. I've never, just said to our team eventually, it's like, look, I don't know if this is going to work. Here's what we're going to do. Are you guys with me? Okay, cool. And now I don't have to worry about have to, having to, to look perfect to them. So that, I think that book and, and specifically her as an author gave me that, that permission that I needed. So it's not like you don't feel it. You just, like, it's not like it doesn't affect you or stick to you. Like, you oh. know, that, what's that old childhood poem? You're rubber and I'm glue. Everything <laughs> bounces off me and sticks to you. I'm 100% the glue. I'm like, I'm sticky and nothing ever rolls off me. So you still feel it. You just let it roll off you faster. than. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I recognize the thought, the thought pattern, I think is what I recognize, right? This is rattling around in my head way too much and it's slowing me down. So what can I do to, to booby trap it? So here, here's, Here's what, I've, here's what I've done, and maybe some people can use this as a tool too. So I knew, I came up with the hypothesis that you know, waking up earlier will be, everyone, everyone theoretically knows this, right? You wake up earlier, good things happen. Um, you know, after having two kids within a year and a half and starting a business in this now, I was like feeling like I had no time for myself. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I need to wake up early. But the reality is, I know this, and a lot of people relate, that I'm less likely to do things for myself. I'm more likely to do them for other people. That's just the way it is. So what, so I created a 5 a.m.ers group and I created accountability around it and I, I'm leading that group. So we would meet every Tuesday and Thursday at 5 a.m. We'd have a question of the day, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It grew to like 600 members in a year. And I was like, well, crap, now I can't not do it. So, and I loved it and it's changed my life until this day. I just wake up automatically at that time and I can literally trace back every single thing. You know, now I, I own like a portion of 13 different businesses. It all traces back to that decision. If, I, if I'm really looking at it. And that's when things changed for me because I stood up and did something for myself and, and forced myself in, again into a leadership role too, which I didn't think about it, but now I'm leading these 600 people. And if I'm not getting up, then what kind of leader am I? So anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is, you know, you're probably more likely to do things for other people than you are for yourself. So figure out what you want and then create either a business around it or create a group or some sort of accountability that puts you in a position where you look bad or feel bad if you don't, if you don't take action. And that for me was enough to get going. So that's how I break the cycle. I love that's that. So, so tell us about year of yes. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, I, I, I am naturally, the story I tell myself, I'll, I'll, use the, I'll use the correct language. The story I tell myself is that I'm from a first generation family that survived the Holocaust. So a family that literally, I, and I saved this to, to remind myself, my dad, who he passed away when I was younger, but he would um, save money every week and put it in his top drawer of his dresser um, in an envelope from PNC Bank and would handwrite. He was an architect, so he had this really beautiful block lettering. And he would keep track, like a ledger of the dollars we were saving. And he was saving for me. My, there was my, my, you know, my name was on one, Danielle, my sister was on one. And so I grew up, to, I, I tell myself this story then from this family that um, basically has a scarcity mindset and that we're all, it's always going to be that way. So we always, things can always be taken away from us. So we need to be really careful of these things. And there's no such thing as like an ab abundance in life. And so that, that was a story I told myself and I, and I witnessed it with my grandfather and, and with my father. And, um, and at a certain point I came to the realization that when I looked at all the things that are truly being successful in my life, it was a result of me saying yes to something that scared me instead of my natural inclination, which was to say no. So again, same theme as before, if I want to say yes to more things, I, need, I want to create people, people around me motivate me as you're probably picking up on this, this theme, right? So I put it out to my friends, right? I put it out to my friends, like, hey, here's what I've realized. I realized all the good things in my life came from when I said yes, not from when I said no and was cautious. 
So who wants to come with me on this journey of saying yes to one thing new every single day? And, um, you know, and you'd be surprised. Your friends, they're thinking the same things. If you're in the circle with them, you, you may be thinking to yourself, they're not going to be interested in this. It's a waste of time. They're too busy. I would argue, though, that because they're friends with you, you have more in common than you think. And they're probably going to be the first one to either want to support you, A, or B, they're going to be thinking, wow, this is the thing I always needed, but I didn't know what I needed. Thank you so much for putting it out there. So, you know, first day, 100 people sign up. And we're just having fun. We're, every day you look for something to say yes to if it didn't automatically come to you. It may be trying a new food or it could be starting a new, you know, a new exercise program. It could be big or small. It didn't matter. Um, you just had to find something and just report back. And again, just the awareness around being part of this group and finding something cool to say yes to. Like, I don't know, if someone said to you today, like, you know, did you have great service at that, that Jiffy Lube that changed your oil yesterday? Like, yeah. Like, why don't you go buy, why don't you buy lunch for everyone there and just make their day and see what kind of a, you know, a trickle down effect of this awesome yes could be. Like, well, yeah, I'm going to go buy them Chick-fil-A and I'm going to drop it off. And I'm gonna, I want nothing in return, but just to say thank you. And like, what could that do? So it's partially just an experiment in like human psychology to see like, what could the trickle down effect be of people being purposeful around saying yes. The other side was just for me to make sure I was still trying new things every day and feeling alive. Um, I worked from home before COVID and I found like I used that as a way to create social connection every day too. So that was just another reason why I did it. But um, I just wanted to explore that notion of what's possible when you say yes instead of saying no. What was the most fun or weirdest or wildest thing you said yes to during the year? Oh man. Um, oh, I bought a pickup truck. I've always, I've always, I'm five seven and I, you know, Northeast United States moved out to Colorado. And I was like, I, I want a big black pickup truck. And the opportunity came around and it's like, it's time saying yes. And there's no logical reason why I need a pickup truck. I don't actually drive to work. I, our commute to market school is like 0.1 mile. Um, but this is a great example of teaching my brain that it's okay. And you know what? I feel so flipping good when I drive it and I'm having so much fun with it. Just took it to the mountains and did a 14 er this week. I didn't even know what a 14 er was before I moved here. I did a 14 er this weekend. And I drove my pickup truck and it just felt awesome. And it's a reminder to my brain that it's okay. It's okay to do things for myself. And um, you know, I've earned it and I deserve it. And it's awesome and it's fun. And that's why I should do it. So that's one that's like a daily reminder for me. I love it. So one of the things that you do um, that's really wild to me is you're pretty heavily involved in the rental market and you're doing it here in Colorado, which I find really wild because nobody ever in the history of Colorado has ever properly monetized rentals. So tell us about that. It's called Tenant Nest, correct? Yeah. So we... Um as I'm sure everyone on this business does, on this podcast does, every month we look at our financials and our business and we check in on how things are going. And mm -hmm. if I just said that and you're like, holy crap, I've never done that. Like stop, hit pause and like go get your P&L. Print out every expense you have and start to see if does it actually help or hinder you. Anyway, so we were doing that and we were staring at the bill that we were paying to a, I'm not going to say their name because I don't want to give them any free publicity but a very popular real estate search site. We were spending a number that had a comma and five figures, you know, around it. And a couple things came to mind. First of all, we're like, holy crap, that's a lot of money. Uh, second was, and the more important one probably was, wow, it really feels like we're renting our business from someone else. And if they decide to shut down, how are we going to support? And, you know, at that point, I think we had like 40 agents on the team. How are we going to support this business? What are we doing? How, and are we actually teaching the agents on our team 
good solid business practices, right? If they had to pick up and move to California for other reasons, would they have the skills to actually build their practice out there? And the answer is probably no. So we were really just failing them and failing our business financially too. So we said, okay, everyone and their mother is facing, I was, I'm a very visual learner. So I was picturing like all the real estate entry facing a wall and they're all staring at that wall and pointing at and saying, we can just really just buy our leads from this business here. And they're all looking that way. So we thought, well, how can we look the other way and win? And what we found was in, this is again in Philadelphia, was that the, there's a very underserved market of people that were looking to rent homes. And if we could work hard to build relationships with them, then essentially these would be the same people that three years later would be going onto that website that everyone else is facing right now. And then they would put in their information and some, some one of them would pay for the right to call them. So we said, well, if we can build the relationships up long enough, uh, strong enough, they won't ever have to go to that search portal and they'll never leave us. So great example, by the way, of having an, an awesome partner in your life and a partner that you don't necessarily always agree with. So we both agreed that was the fundamentally correct thing we need to do. We need to, we need to figure out how we can monetize in the short term enough you know, from the rental business to build a relationship over time to earn the right to do multiple transactions with them in the future. My natural inclination would be to build it. Okay, I, I go into building mode. Like, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna need some people. We're gonna figure out how to train them. We're gonna need some marketing, like all these things. My partner, who thinks it very differently than I do, said, let me just make a couple phone calls to some of the rental, to brokerages in the city that do a lot of rentals. Let's see if we can just buy one of them. A month later, we had purchased the largest rental brokerage in the city. I still would have been off creating marketing flyers. My partner, um, oh, again, we always butt heads. We do not, we, we probably disagree them more than we agree, but I, we respect each other and we respect each other. And so I was able to see that that was the right way to do it. And, and it, it was, he, it just changed the whole trajectory of our business, right? Um, not only did we pick up this massively awesome portfolio of people looking to rent their homes, but also, um, it opened up relationships with a ton of landlords, which was the byproduct of this whole experiment. And now we can add value to those landlords. We can help them buy properties um, and we can build those relationships. And that turns, that, that grows even exponentially faster. It's also for those people looking to build their, their teams, it's just a great way to interview new talent, to put them through a rent, your, your rental division first, have them do their first 10 transactions on the rental side. I know some of you are scratching your head, like how do I make money in this? And I'll explain that in a second. But psychologically, if you put them through the, the rental side first, A, you see the level of grit and determination they bring to your business. B, it gives them the opportunity to get paid their first week. And if there's, a, if there's an, you know, an issue that plagues our industry in terms of a barrier to get talent into it, it's the fact that it normally takes you two to three months to get paid in this business. So if you can instantly get them paid their first week, it, what a great bonding experience that is. So that was one of those inflection points when you look back at your business, you're gonna think like that, that moment changed everything. And when in moving to Colorado, to Lindsay's point, no one really focused on this because frankly, my, my, my hypothesis at this point is that they view it as a waste of time because they can't make money doing it. I view that as a very short, short-term way to think. Um, what I found is in markets where, specifically here in Denver, and this is very common in, in doing my research around the country, um, when properties are listed on the MLS for rent, they often pay very small commissions to a tenant agent, right? So it could be a $2,000 rental, but they're paying $100, which frankly is almost like a slap in the face. If I'm a landlord and I'm, and I'm seeing this, I'm like, why wouldn't I want 8,000 agents here to be excited about renting my property? Wouldn't it happen faster? So that's a whole nother conversation for another day. But 
in markets like that, when you're seeing it, it just key, it should key you in that actually it's an opportunity. It doesn't mean there's not there's not business to be had because we're, everyone forgets about the customer. Everyone's thinking about themselves as an agent. Oh, I can't make money. But think about the customer's experience. If you're moving here, like I was from Philadelphia, your only option is then, because none of the tenant agents will call you back because they don't want to waste, waste time, I'm doing with air quotes, showing you properties because they can't make money. Well, that just puts me in an awful position where every, the day I come in, I have to meet 18 different people, half of which won't call me back, uh, you know, from Zillow, from Craigslist, from Facebook, from, you know, the whole bit. So in other words, the customer experience is awful. And that means there's opportunity for executing at a higher level to provide value and build relationships, which is the whole point anyway. So what this means is in a market, if you're listening in a market where the commission structure is the same, you're just missing an objection handler. You're missing in a conversation with the potential tenant. So in this case, I charge a minimum commission to work with these tenants because well, A, I need to protect my time and B, I'm adding a ton of value. And see the tenants more than willing to pay it because they're willing, they would love to work with one person all day, then try to figure out how to meet up with these 15 different people. So that, that lack of financial opportunity is the financial opportunity. You're just getting the money from a different party. So think bigger about it. That's it. End of story. And here's the thing. I'll give, I'll give you some, some hints to get you started. The two biggest lead sources are already under your nose and they're completely free. The first are, the first is think about your office. So, Lindsay and I are in the same office here. There's 500 plus agents in our office. Instead of going in an office and thinking, well, wow, now I have 499 competitors, how can you change them into your customers? This way, you, you stand up at the first meeting and you introduce yourself and say, my name is Jake. I bring exceptionally different talent than everyone else in the room here. I work with all the leads that you either roll your eyes at when you get them or you completely ignore them. And you know what I'm talking about. Use the leads that are people that are calling about your for sale rental, uh, for sale listing, asking if they can rent it or the, the leads you get through Zillow or realtor.com, wherever, that are like, hey, is this for rent? And you ignore them or you delete them. And you probably feel guilty about it. Well, now you don't have to anymore. Just forward them to me. I'll work with them and I'll send you back a referral fee. They're all gonna think you're crazy because they're like, how's this dude making any money? You say, but that's my problem. And by the way, half of them, when they reach out to me, and Lindsay will laugh at this because she knows all the people in the office, they're like, I don't even want a referral fee because I don't know how you make money anyway. <laughs> well, you know what? I do send them a referral fee afterwards because I want them, I want to obviously create that, that relationship. So that's the first way. You change everyone in your office instead of being a competitor into your customer. And number two, um, this is the secret sauce here, is, is you go and meet with management companies in your area. They're not your competitors. They need your help. They don't want to, if they're really being honest, and when you build relationships, they'll share this with you. They don't want to be in the rental business. They want to be in the management business. The rental piece comes along with it as a byproduct. They don't want it any more than anyone else. So if you can build a relationship, you can go in there and we've, we've swooped up and built these massive relationships with management companies where we're their exclusive listing agent basically. And every month they're just sending you a list of properties to lease up. And when you're doing your job the right way, you're building relationships with these folks, you nurture them and you know, everyone will have a different strategy here, but you invite them to home buyer seminars or invite them to invest in seminars. And you'll, 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 you know, figure out what their timeline is to eventually potentially become a homeowner. And here's the thing. If you're in a market like ours where people move a lot, that's fine too. When they move to San Diego, you'll still be in a relationship with them and you'll, you'll earn a referral fee by finding them an agent in San Diego. So it's just a different means to get to the same end that everyone else is. I'm just willing to take the risk up front and make you know, $1,000 today and then make $30,000 next year instead of paying search portal A, B, or C five, six, $7,000 a month and keeping my fingers crossed that these people know me, will know me, like me, and trust me. I'd much rather work with 
frankly, a distressed pros prospect who really needs some help and some love because that's where I shine and that's where, our, you know, our, our, our team will shine. So, um, so it's been a really, you know, it's been the game changer for us in Philly and it's been for me coming to Denver. I think my first month here, just from our office alone, I, I had like 53 inbound referral leads for rentals in my first month. And I know all of, between Lindsay and a couple other people, I know like I think four people in the whole state of Colorado. Yeah. So as a, as a new agent, quote unquote here, it's been a, it's been a game changing way to start. Can I just say that you are incredibly smart for doing that? Um, I'm in Colorado Springs and I have one of the biggest um, rental home Facebook pages down here um, with 11,000 members, but I've never monetized it. I've just helped people because yes. I wanted them to get into a house. <laughs> um, but monetizing it would definitely help and make it a lot easier and you probably get a lot better service. Um, and I know my agents would definitely work harder. Um, that's so smart like yeah like look and i don't know about the offices you guys have been a part of but i've often overheard conversations with new agents when they say well should i start work on some rentals and people are like oh my god no it's a complete waste of time well here's my here's my perspective and people can disagree that's fine is if i have an agent joining me on my team and they have a choice between sitting at home on their couch and theoretically making phone calls all day or going out to work with one person the entire day i'll give them the whole day Right, I'm going to show them 15 properties, but we're going to, we're going to pick one that day because I set expectations up front. We are going to pick one. Um, so I know I'm going to get paid because I am willing to bet on my ability to build relationships with the person I'm getting in front of. And I know they know a lot more people. Even if they're just moving here, they're going to work with someone. Theoretically, they're going to start meeting people. And I want to be the one that, that show them what it's all about to be a good person. Because frankly, I think it's our job as agents is not to ignore people that don't earn us enough money, but really to help people through these really challenging and stressful processes. So I'd much rather have that person going out knowing they're going to make money and having the chance to build 300 relationships, right? Through this one person and sitting at home, hoping they'll get one pissed off expired listing owner on the phone. You know, there's a time and a place for that. And by the way, I'm not suggesting this is your whole business model. This is just one spoke, you know, one, one, one um, leg of the chair uh, to help build a really balanced business where you don't ever have to worry about lead flow. Yeah. That's how I started my business. I was sitting in a model home. Um, Lindsay and I worked for the same builder at the time. And I was like, I got to get out of here um, at some point. So I started building a rental homes page and that was my lead source. You know, I started treating those people like my sphere. And most of the time they didn't end up renting. They ended up buying and they didn't have a realtor because they were looking at rentals. So I was their yeah. realtor and that's how I started my business. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I think that I totally missed the boat and, you know, now I can at least fix it, but yeah, I think we, you talked about failure before, like we all fail like every single day. We just get more comfortable with it over time, I think. Yeah, yeah here, here's my new mantra in every business that I build is like, how do I, you know, I want to get paid to build my business. So the way I look at the rental, the rental um, tenants that come into our world is that we're literally just getting paid to add them to our database. I'm not getting paid $30,000 at them. And I'm well aware of that. I'm getting paid $1,000 to add them, $2,000, whatever it is. But what other businesses have that right you know and as, a, and as a young agent yeah you could download the list from your you know your religious school or your your high school class or go through facebook but i'm literally getting paid to add value add this person to my database and now i have the right to to continue to build a relationship with them for for years to come um so i'm passionate about it, just a way to, to add value and again turn your competitors into your clients you can go to all the offices in your in your whole region if you brand yourself the right way, that's why I picked the tenant as brands. Like I, you know, the agents in my office don't have to know that I can also sell real estate. 
they i just want them to think of me whenever they think of rentals they think of jake and you'll see and Lindsay will corroborate this you'll see them on facebook and who's that dude that does the rentals again and someone will chime in before i have a chance oh it's jake and like you know then i get an email you know or text like hey can you work with this person like, sure you know so it's like how again how can you stand out how can you be different and that's that's this is one way to do it i would love to take your brain and transplant it into my head you're so smart and inspirational um, so one of the things that I really, really, and humble too, which I love about you. So one of the things that I really want to talk about um, is your family, because Jake, I feel like we talk to a lot of powerful men and a lot of powerful women, and we talk amongst ourselves about our marriages and our families. Jake is married to probably one of the most powerful women that I've ever met. Um, so Alex is all high D, no qualms about it, very smart, has an incredible job, runs a lot of people. How do you, how do, you do this? We've talked to so many women that come on our show, like we just had on um, Liz Johnson, who's absolutely amazing. And you know, she, for 20 minutes, she was like, I just don't know how I'm ever gonna find a man because every man says they want a strong woman, woman but very, very few actually do. So like, how, how do you, do this with two high D very driven personalities in one home. How do you manage the family? How does all of this work? Man, appreciate you asking. Um, I think the, the, the shortest way to say it is understanding. So I like to wake up early. I like to like, I'm like a Tony Robbins. Guy. I like to jump around, you know, <laughs> which is and like, I also, but I also have this very shy side. So it's like, I have this, weird thing on it. I'm into that stuff. Like I want to learn how my brain works. Uh, I'm reading books on neurolinguistic programming. I'm reading about all kinds. I just, I'm like, just curious. I like to, and she thinks that all that's kind of weird, but doesn't judge me for it. And just kind of like gives me the space to do what I need. And so we kind of have this, this, what I'm getting at is we kind of have this rule that's, it was first unspoken, but now it's spoken. It's like, if one of us feels like something is necessary, the other person's response is always yes. It's just that's it's just that simple, you know. I need to go for a run tomorrow morning. Is that okay? Yeah, I need. I, I, I'm feeling like I need this. Yeah, it's just it's just reflexive, right? What's what they say? Spontaneity is a trained reflex, right? So we, I think, because I think our natural inclination is like to question or to say no and think about what I need. Um, but even if it means inconvenience for one of us, it's a yes. So, you know, we just adopt this new dog. And um, I said to Ali, I, I had some friends coming in from Kansas this weekend to climb. It was the, uh, the, Dem the Mount Democrats, like four different 14,000 foot mountains, like in a circle. It's really cool. And you climb all in one day. And in your pickup truck. In my pickup truck, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> very, very proud of. And, uh, you know, the dog was in town. The kids are here. Our babysitter is sick. And like, even with the babysitter coming, she's never handled the dog and the kids before. So it's a whole, whole new thing. And I remember the conversation I was like, I was like, I really want to ask if I can still go because it's important to me. And I was kind of nervous about it. And I was like, and I got the courage and I said, do you mind if I still go? I really want to do this. And she said, sure. And there was no guilt trip about it. When I got home, there was no like, it was like, hey, how was it? It wasn't like, oh, you never believe how awful the kids have been or something. It was like, we, and we both performed though. Cause I know it was hard. I know it was hard because she had to get up at five with the dog and all that. So we, we, we do what's necessary, not what's easy you know, in support of each other and just say yes and figure out how to make it, how to make it work. Alex, you know, Alex is like, 
she's much more social than I'm, so she needs more social interaction. So she'll want to go out with the girls for, for a drink at night. I was like, sure, go ahead. Like, yeah, it's going to be cast with the dog and the kids. Like, we'll figure it out. It's fine. You know, cause I want the same thing back. So I don't know, I'm kind of rambling, but I think it's like what I've, what I've learned through a lot of failure is that um, you give what you want back, right? I, I, I want flexibility and support. So I attempt to give it whenever I can. And as you know, Lindsay, she'll remind me if I'm not. And um, but I think that's, that's how it works. I can verify the Tony Robbins thing because Jake and I were talking about going to unleash the power within, which by the way, we still need to do. Um, but you know, I asked Allie, do you want to go with us? And she was like, <laughs> hell no. Like you guys are out of your damn minds for wanting to jump around and share your feelings <laughs> at a deep level in a giant room full of people, but you can go with Jake. That's what right, she right. said. You can right. go with Jake. I'll be with the girls. So. Yeah. And like, I, I think, like, so we made a couple of rules when we got married. Like the D word can never come out of our mouth, no matter how bad things get ever. That word cannot be taken back. Um, and so that's important. And based on that conversation, it's like, just, just if it's important, you just, you just kind of go with it. Like those are kind of like the ground rules. Uh, and we just trust each other. Um, and I think there's some other underlying stuff that has to be worked on too. Like that, then, then that sounds easy now, but when we're really looking at it, like, we've gone through at super level our, our we go through our financials every month, right? We were constantly like in lockstep with that. Cause then that's, those are areas where we, we view opportunity and risk differently. So we've created common ground there. And I think, I think the, 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 the inflection point where we came together on that was we went to the book, the one thing they have a goal setting retreat every year. This year it's been done, being done remotely. Jeff Woods and Jay Papazan lead it. And it's fantastic. And the second year they did it, it was for couples. And um, she begrudgingly came with me. And that was when we first realized that as a couple, you know, whether it's whether you call it goal setting or dreaming, it's not about negotiating to share the same goal or dream. It's about merely understanding each other's goals and dreams so that you can support them and understand it. I think with some of that underlying work that we did, it allows for more comfort, right? Because um, if I wanna take a risk on new business, if I hadn't, if we had never talked about our financials, then there might be a whole talk track triggering in her head about, well, do we even have enough now? What's going to happen? But because we actually do know, we can now open up an app and see you know, our net worth on a, on a moment to moment basis. We can see our passive cash flow. It allows for that conversation to move on to actually the purpose of it is like, are you, do you support this is a good idea? And we can have that conversation instead of like going into like a fear mode and all the emotions that come from that. So I think if there's advice buried in that whole long answer to your question, it's like, get the critical stuff, talk about sex, talk about uh, money, talk about religion, talk about kids, uh, do it upfront as early as possible. And then as often as possible to make sure, cause goals will change and thoughts on that will change. And then the other stuff should get easier over time and with practice. How do you keep resentment at bay? Do you think both of you for the fact that you both have monstrous careers and big goals and, um, like not to say it badly, but it's reality, right? That like a lot of times there's not a dedicated person committed to watching the girls and cleaning the house and doing all the day-to-day -day stuff. Like, are, do you guys, are you masters at leverage? How do you not have resentment towards each other for like, Hey, 
business is great, but shit's off the rails at home. I think, I think the resentment's always there. I think we're human. I think it's, it's going to be there. It's just a question of to what degree does it, is it paralyzing or is it momentary? And, and I think like based on the season of life, sometimes one person in the couple gets prioritized. It, it might be their financial, it might be their career needs, it might be their health needs, it might be um, their fun needs, you know, and that's just, that's just the way relations are. And, and, and animosity will be there. Like I'm sure there's parts of the day on Sunday where she's like, screw this dude, he's off climbing a mountain, I'm here like dealing with whatever I'm dealing with. Um, and then you remember, this is part of a larger plan. You know, and it's reciprocated or there's evidence in the past that it's already been reciprocated and that this, this was earned. So I think awareness around the evidence in your relationship, like if you're really being honest with yourself, what evidence exists that you've been pouring into the relationship? Not looking for evidence that animosity doesn't exist, but like what evidence is there that you've tried to help or that I've tried, I'll speak first person, that I've tried to help, right? So for me, one of those things is like, by the time she comes down in the morning, the countertops are clean from the, the dishes from the night before. You know, so it just can look and feel clean because I know that's important to her to feel like the home is organized so she can be in a mentally strong place to start the day. You know, and I'm, I, I don't have a problem waking up early. I enjoy it. So, but there are, yeah, are there moments like a Sunday where I'm kind of frustrated that my dog's trained to wake up at 530? I'm like, yeah, you know, and there's other trade-offs. You know, she'll, she'll volunteer to do something in the afternoon. And it's, and it's not always one-to-one. Yeah, I'm not, we're not keeping score. Um, so that's where I think the animosity comes from is if you're keeping score. There has to be some flexibility and some movement there in recognizing that in this season of life, this is what my partner needs and I'm going to be the one to support that. Well, because you moved your entire life across the country. Allie's job was based here in Colorado. And so I don't know for how many years, but for a long time, she was leaving Jake, leaving her babies at home to fly across you know, the country from Philly to Colorado all the time. And then you were so equitable you you relocated your entire life here so that she could be closer to work and have her career which i think is rare well, and incredible well we, we created rules for our game so at that at that goal setting retreat the thing we the only thing the literally the only thing we agreed upon in our future goals was that we want to look back at our life and say there was an adventure and that allows us to make decisions now that we have that as our kind of north star when a decision comes up about moving to Colorado and moving the kids and so it will this be closer to our goal of living adventure or won't it? So it wasn't about like, is she getting what she needs and I'm not? It was like, this is our goal and we're just going to figure out all the rest of the pieces, you know, and you know, look for some, like we had, we had built up our, you know, for me on the career side, like it built up some things that enabled me to make that decision for other couples. If they weren't quite there yet, they still might said, yeah, that's the right decision for us, but we just can't do it yet because to meet our other immediate, more immediate needs and goals. So again, it comes back to the transparency around all the other aspects of the wheel of life, you know, the financial piece and all that to make sure that you're all in lockstep so you can make decisions like that. Um, but also truth be told, like I, we were living in San Francisco, there's a piece of the story I, I left out, but I had started a, a small software company. And when we sold that, we ended up Ali and I moved to California for a little bit and we moved back to Philadelphia for the start of, you know, my partnership with Noah. So she had, you know, we'd put up, we only lived in San Francisco for a year and we loved it there. And, but she knew this, this role would be important to me and the trajectory of my career. And so it was also time for me to say, again, just say yes and figure it out because this was her chance to do that too. This was her season. 
I love it. So tell us, wrap us up by telling about us about your coaching ventures. You've got obviously a huge passion for that. I, yeah, I've just, I, I became turned on to the, the power of, I always had strong like athletics, co- athletic coaches growing up and teacher mentors. And I, I always kind of just looked at coaching in that realm of like, do this much exercise and you get this much out and the person kind of barks at you. I'd never experienced um, coaching on a professional level where it was just a chance for me. It was not therapy. It's kind of halfway between like therapy and like doing pushups. It's like right there in the middle where it's just someone that can kind of help me see what I'm choosing most likely not to see. Cause I probably know it's there. I'm just choosing not to see it. So it's kind of like a blind spot detector. So when we moved our business to KW to Keller Williams, um, it was just part of the culture. Just part of the culture of the company is that people are honest with each other and it's kind of like a coaching culture, whether you're paying for it or not. Um, and that just kind of opened my eyes. And I was fortunate to, to earn a spot um, being a coach as well and learning how much there's a difference there is between coaching and training. I always kind of thought the two are basically the same thing, but coaching is a, requires a lot more um, restraint and help allowing someone to self-discover what, what the actual blind spot is and help them to move forward versus training, which is like do A, B, and C and you'll be fine. So this is when I also started to realize that there's a lot more that I, there's more that I don't know about the human brain and conscious thought and, sub, and uh, um, unconscious thought. And I really need to understand this because I want to understand it for myself. The reason I, again, common theme of, with me, is the reason I decided I wanted to become a coach is because I also know that I'm not a hypocrite. So if I'm coaching Lindsay on something, I will not, or I will carry a massive amount of guilt about not doing the same thing for myself, knowing that's what, I, what needs to be done. So it was again, kind of like a booby trap to be more purposeful with what I do professionally as well. Um, and it really unlocked a lot of key relationships for me. I, the, client, the client relationships I have, it's, it's, it's amazingly deep. There's a lot of, te- I'm, I'm a crier. So there's, there's tears on the calls, there's, you know, both with triumphs and, and failures. And um, it's just one of those things I wanted my schedule for the rest of my life. It's just a chance to, pour into someone else. And the reality is I think, and I think every coach will nod their head and agree with this. Who's everyone, anyone who's paid to be a, a coach is that you ultimately get more out of relationships than your clients do. It's not to say your clients don't, hopefully won't get a lot. It's so that you as the coach, it is hard, hard work, emotionally all in hundred percent focus. So, cause I know again, if someone's paying me in exchange for my time and experience and expertise that I need to show up 110%. And I think the unfortunate reality is a lot of us in life kind of go through it me included certain aspects of my life and autopilot. And when you're on a coaching call and that person's paying a couple thousand dollars a month for 30 minutes of your time each week, you better show up ready to rock and roll. You know, you better be ready and they better leave kind of feeling this awesome combination between uh, excited, passionate, and a little bit overwhelmed and scared all at the same time. Cause that's how they know they're alive and that it wasn't just a half hour call with their buddy. So, um, the coaching program I'm a part of is called Kaizen Coaching and Kaizen is a Japanese word for constant, never-ending improvement. It does not mean like overnight improvement. It just means incremental growth each, each day, each week, you know, and that's what I really connect to is like I work with my clients on just, you know, increasing the skill set in whatever area we're working on incrementally each day, not, not overnight though, you know, and so that's, um, that's just something I want to do forever. So it's really glad I came across my plate. Well, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today and for being so transparent. It's so nice to talk to you. Mm. I can't wait to see what 15 other businesses you open next week. <laughs> <laughs> You're always moving. <laughs> well, 
thank you guys thank you guys for your time too and and for anyone who um wants to literally learn how to do the rental business piece we actually built a course for it too so if you want to check it out you can go to tenantnest.com slash course and uh and there's a whole program where literally we just mike and i my partner and i just gave away everything that we did um um so so because we're, we're curious if it works in other markets it's working well for us in philly and working in denver but anyway so if you're interested check it out. what's the investment um, well, it, you can either like pay by the month. It's like 250 bucks a month for four months uh, or you can pay it up front and get a discount for that. Um, and then each Monday we also get on the phone live with everybody and we go through the role playing and live Q and A. It's just something that Mike and I want to do to give back. Cause we just, we see so many agents struggling with starting up and it's, it's literally the easiest way to do it. And you can earn income today and, and really create a nice niche for yourself. So. Well, I think I will probably be calling you Mr. Jake. Um, <laughs> Because that sounds like an incredible um, substitute for a sales meeting um, that would uh, actually do something for my agents. So, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, you, your agents will probably walk away having you know hundreds of new people in their database each year that they never would have had before. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's just cheap. so crazy. Like, I hope that people that listen to this hear how you took something that everybody else like throws in the trash can, and you're building a business yeah. out of it. It's unbelievable how you just looked at something as opportunity that no one else ever would have. And now I'm kicking myself for it. Very smart. Yeah. Well, well thank thanks. you guys. I really appreciate the invite. This was really fun. It's good seeing everybody. Thanks, Jake. Give Ali a hug for me. I will. Have a great okay. day. Bye guys. Bye. We hope you loved our show today. If you enjoyed it, do the homegirls a favor and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Share this episode with all of your homegirls and friends and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at homegirlsco.